remember, uh, but last week uh, we looked at uh, the first kind of chapter of the book of Nehemiah. Um, and when we did that, we looked at two main things, right? The sermon was broken up into two things, and I'll just recap it. Uh, we looked at context and conviction, right? If you remember, context, I spent half our time on context, and I took us through the biblical story from Abraham through to the promised land, you know, Israel's height of prosperity under Solomon. It seemed like they finally made it, and it was like everything was good. It was like, you know, the Garden of Eden kind of, uh, but then they quickly, very, very quickly spiraled down, and the kingdom broke into two. Um, the northern kingdom was overrun by the Assyrians, the southern kingdom of Judah overrun by the Babylonians, and everyone was dispersed and sent into exile, right? And that's why Nehemiah, right, in the book of Nehemiah, he's not in Jerusalem, he's not in, you know, the kingdom of God, he's in Susa, right? He's in the winter palace of the Persian king, and he's a cupbearer to the king, right? And that was all the context. And then we looked at conviction, because he hears about what's happening in Jerusalem, right? And I said that uh, he had the conviction to think, right? He's thinking about Jerusalem. He's thinking about the people of God. And then he asks what's going on. And he hears that it's not well, right? It's not well with the city. It's not well with the people. And then he had the conviction to feel, right? He weeps and mourns for days, we hear in chapter one. And not only that, he then has the conviction to act. And the first thing he does uh, before he does anything is he prays. Right? And so today in chapter two, we're going to see more of that action come out into play. Uh, but as uh, Nehemiah acts, uh, he kind of confronts these obstacles, right? I'm going to call them conviction killers, right? He comes across at least three obstacles that potentially uh, can kill our convictions, right? And they are the conviction killers of delay and then dread and discouragement. Uh, but as Nehemiah confronts each of these conviction killers or obstacles, uh, he's able to courageously push through, and the key through all of it is faith, right? And that's what I'm going to say. It's his faith in God that allows him to have the courage to push through these conviction killers. And so as we go through chapter two, uh, hopefully it will be encouraging to each of us personally as Christians uh, to push through in our godly convictions with faith in God, but also as Kingsway launch team members, right, to take our convictions and to be courageous and push through, you know, whatever conviction killers we're facing. And so we're going to jump into it. I'm, I'm going to warn you, uh, the sermon uh, might be a little long, um, but hopefully it won't be um, too boring. Okay, number one, we're going to look at delay. All right, let's start in verse one of chapter two. It says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. I don't know if you remember, but last week we left Nehemiah in a place of prayer. And we pick it up here in chapter two, verse one in the month of Nisan. And um, we here already find our first conviction killer, right? Can you guess what it is? It's a bit obvious. It's right at the top in yellow, right? It's delay, right? Chapter one, verse one, it says um, it starts in the month of Kislev, right? And at the end of chapter one, Nehemiah is asking God to help him speak to the king. I quote, he says today, right? He wants to speak to the king today. Right, but the very next verse after verse 11 of chapter 1 is this verse in chapter 2, right? It's, it's back to back. And it says, we're now in the month of Nisan, right? And that's four months later, right? Nehemiah thinks he's going to speak to the king today and he's praying to God. But, you know, the next verse, it's four months later, four months delay, right? Four months have passed, four months of uh, Nehemiah thinking, you know, I'm going to speak to the king today, maybe today, maybe today, right? and four months have gone by. Right, that's four months for the conviction that he once had 
to die. Well, waiting for God's timing、uh, is hard. I don't know if you've ever had a conviction,、uh, but you had to wait to see the fruit of that conviction. Right, you come out of a, a retreat. You're on a spiritual high. You're so pumped up. I'm going to see transformation in this area of my life, in this area of my life. But you know, growth is slow. Right, maybe it's delayed. And over time, what ends up happening is that conviction can die. Or you hear a talk about the importance of evangelism, and you get pumped up. You know, I'm going to evangelize to everyone in my life. But you find out God's timing is not your own. Right, opportunities aren't as quick as you want it to be. Right, their hearts are hardened for longer than you want it to be. Right, four months pass by, and our conviction fades away. Right, delay is often one of the biggest conviction killers. Right, this is where our convictions often go to die between chapter one and two. Right, in those four months, or the four weeks, or the four years of waiting. Right, waiting is hard. Right, too often the story of our own convictions ends in chapter one. And it never has a chapter two or three or four, right? Because it dies in that place of waiting. And so, when you think about it, it's quite remarkable that Nehemiah is able to keep his convictions. His convictions are able to stay, right? He has the faith to stay the course of his convictions despite four months passing by. And so, the question is, well, how does Nehemiah keep his convictions alive, right? What does he do? Right, it's it's faith in God, but specifically, what does he do? He he does two things, and these are really the only two things you can do in the place of waiting or the place of delay. Right, he prepares and he prays. Right, when you're waiting, you can really only prepare and pray, and so he prepares.、Uh, we see this just in his ability to answer all the questions that the king is going to throw at him. Right, and we'll see that in a moment. But you can tell that Nehemiah has thought deeply about, you know, what he's going to say, or what he's going to do, how he's going to accomplish this conviction that he has. You can tell just in this chapter. And so obviously he's he's spent the four months not, you know, wasting it,、um, but preparing. Right, the waiting time wasn't a wasted time because he used it to prepare. And so when there's delay, preparation is usually the best next step. Not only does he prep, but he prays. Now we saw last week at the end of chapter one, Nehemiah is a person of prayer, and that prayer, you know, I had a whole chunk of. You know, I was going to break it down,、um, but I took it all out because this sermon's already, you know, quite long. But if you look at the end of chapter one, you know, you can really tell that he's a man of prayer, right? He, it says in verse four, when he hears about Jerusalem, he weeps and mourns for days. But even after he stops weeping and mourning. He continues to fast and pray, right? And there's no reason to think he ever stopped, right? It's just continuing, right? Even through the four months, we'd assume. When he prays to God, he says, "I pray before you day and night," right? This is emphasizing just how constant his praying is, right? It's no coincidence that the very last thing he's doing at the end of chapter one is that he's praying, right? And then, right, we get to verse one and. And it's like in the gap of those verses, four months pass by. But the last thing we see is praying, right? It's, it's as if it's telling us that's what he's been doing all the way through. And so, in the delay, Nehemiah is able to keep his convictions aflame because he's preparing. But also, I think most importantly, he's praying. Right? Prayer is the oxygen that keeps our godly convictions aflame. Right? When we pray, our convictions are kind of like brought back to life. 
It's not only because, you know, when you pray, you, you keep the thought of it alive, right? Because if you're praying about something, you're, you're reminded of it. Oh, that's right. That, that's on my mind. But it also keeps the hope of it alive, right, in your heart. Because when we pray, we're coming to the God who is strong and able, right? And even if you're waiting, right, if you're praying, you know that he is working, right? He's working in our waiting, right? That's what that song says. And so not only should conviction lead to prayer, but as we pray, it sustains and grows that conviction, right? Especially when there's delay. I don't know if you saw the Facebook post by Chuan. Um, I was personally really encouraged by it. Uh, I'm sure you are too. I sent him a message. I, I told him it was very well written. It's like God has gifted him to communicate things for God, right? Hint. Um, but, you know, when I saw that photo um, and he's, he's posted a photo and I think his intention was to remind us of our conviction and passion we had back in February. And when I saw that photo, I was like, yeah, like I, I could just kind of feel being in that room, right? The room was buzzing and we were all excited about this new thing we were doing. We we're going to plant a church. Um, but, you know, I don't know. How do, how do you feel now compared to back then? Right? Times passed. We've waited, right? We've delayed the launch because of you know, COVID or God's timing. And maybe your conviction has suffered or been killed in the delay. Right? And I'd wager in these 11 months of waiting, those of us who've prepared and those of us who've prayed have maintained our convictions better. Right? Because in the delay, if you prepare and you pray, it will keep your convictions alive. Right? Those of us who've prepared because we're in a ministry or doing admin tasks or personally just preparing your heart, serving other people, trying to contact, connect, convert people. But right? if you've prepared, I feel like more likely your convictions are alive. But also if you've been praying, Right? I'm certain that your convictions have been kept alive. And so if your convictions have kind of died down a bit, I want to encourage you in the remaining eight weeks, we've got eight weeks. <laughs> it's so scary to say we have eight weeks, guys. In the remaining eight weeks, prepare, right? Do something to get involved and to prepare for launch, right? But most importantly, pray, right? So this coming Friday, I'm going to post it on Facebook right, sometime in the week, but this coming Friday, 30th of October, we're going to get together um, did I say 8 p.m. Friday on Zoom? It's not going to be flashy. Uh, we're just going to gather together God's people with a conviction to pray with a bit of desperation. Let's gather together. Let's pray and let's keep our convictions alive. Right? That's the first thing. The first conviction killer, delay. And in delay, prepare and pray. The sec second conviction killer that Nehemiah faces is dread, right? It's fear. And often fear comes into you know, our lives uh, when we have a conviction and the fear of what is before us, the fear of, especially in Nehemiah, saying out loud what our convictions are, cause us to give up on our convictions. All right, let's look at that. In verse 1 to 8, uh, we're going to see the king of Persia. He throws at Nehemiah three quick, blunt questions. Right, just throwing it at the face of Nehemiah, and he answers them all. And then at the end, Nehemiah asks his own question to the king, and it's a little bit of a crazy question. We'll get to that soon. And so we're going to look at the questions. But before we do, uh, let's read verse 1 to 2. So it's in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. Right, let me pause there. Uh, Nehemiah is not being sad because the cupbearer is not allowed to be sad in front of the king, right? You could be punished for it, but right? who wants a cupbearer who's miserable? You want him to be happy and you know, make you happy as well. 
Right, verse two. And the king said to me, why is your face sad? Right, seeing as you are not sick. Right, the king realizes something. Right, and he knows Nehemiah is not sick because, you know, if Nehemiah is sick, he, he shouldn't be there. Right, the wine taster should not taste the king's wine when he's sick and give it back to the king. Right, you got to, you know, isolate and be COVID safe. Um, the king says, this is nothing but sadness of the heart. Uh, Nehemiah says, then I was very much afraid. Let me pause here. Uh, why was Nehemiah afraid? Right, there's a few potential reasons, uh, but I think it comes down to this. That Nehemiah is, quote, very much afraid because he's just about to say his convictions out loud. Right, he's been planning and praying for this for four months, and it's the moment. Right, the time is now. And God has opened the door. The conversation uh, that he's been waiting for is, is about to happen. And he's going to you know, say out loud what he's been keeping in his heart. Um, you know, it's one thing to hold a conviction privately. You know, I, I'm going to do this, you know, and I want to make this happen. You write it in your journal. But it's something else to, to say it out loud to people, right? To make it public, to tell someone. Because when you do that, you, you can't, you know, take it back. You can't change your mind, right? You've made it public. And Nehemiah is going to make it public, by the way, to the king. And the king uh, is the one who had stopped the walls from being built back in Ezra 4, right? Back in Ezra 4, they're building the temple, they're trying to build the walls, and the king stops it from happening because, you know, he hears that Jerusalem is a place where, you know, kings have risen who are quite powerful, and he doesn't want, you know, a great city to be rebuilt. And Nehemiah is going to make his conviction public to this king about wanting to rebuild the wall. It's scary. Uh, it's risky to say out loud uh, what is in your heart, your conviction, uh, especially when the person you're saying it to can say yes or no to it. Right? It's like the difference between thinking and praying about inviting a friend to church uh, and then actually saying it to them and inviting to them. Right? It's scary to actually vocalize it. Right? And so the king asks Nehemiah, uh, why is your face sad? He's afraid, but then he responds. And he responds actually quite boldly. He, he's bold throughout this whole thing. Right? This is what he says. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Right? Why should not my face be sad? Why should not my face be sad? Right? The grammar is funny. When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Look how bold he is. He doesn't just say, you know, yes, I'm a little bit sad. He says, why should not my face be sad? It's like he's saying, of course I'm sad. I have good reason to be sad. Jerusalem is in ruins. And that's your fault. But Jerusalem is in ruins. And he, he makes a big deal about, you know, the situation. You know, when I first read this, I thought, whoa, Nehemiah, just calm down. But shouldn't you be less in the face of the king? Isn't it smarter to, you know, like not, not be so bold to the guy who can behead you? Uh, but when you think more deeply about it, it's quite important that Nehemiah is bold, right? It's important at certain times with wisdom to make a big deal about what matters to you. Because if you don't make a big deal about what matters to you, it's unlikely they will make a big deal about it as well, right? If you think about it, if Nehemiah like tried to play it down, if Nehemiah said, oh, well, you know, I'm just a little bit sad. You see, Jerusalem's in ruins, but it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. But what would have most likely happened is that the king would have just you know, moved on in the conversation. He wouldn't have given it a second thought. He wouldn't have taken the topic seriously because, well, Nehemiah is not taking it seriously. 
It doesn't seem to matter much to him. Why should it matter to me? And Nehemiah would have lost his chance to actually have a conversation with the king. Because Nehemiah was bold, because he was courageous to stand up for what mattered to him, the king was kind of forced to take it seriously, to ask if he uh, was going to you know, change his mind. You know, a, a lot of times we don't make a big deal about things that matter to us, whether, you know, for our context, Jesus or the Bible or church or our launch, let's say. You know, we don't want to make a big deal about it in front of people because if we do, it becomes riskier. You know, we have a lot more to lose when we're bold. Right? In Nehemiah's case, because he's bold, he's got a lot to lose now. Right? The king might be upset. He might disagree with him. He might be offended right? because he's the one who stopped the building of the walls. Nehemiah could lose his job or he could lose his life. By being bold, Nehemiah has a lot more to lose, but he also has a lot more to gain for God. And similarly for us, we, when we're bold, we have a lot more to lose because you know, that person might not want to come to church and now it's awkward. Or we might offend them by saying, you know, I believe in Jesus and they don't. Right? We have a lot more to lose, but we also have a lot more to gain for Jesus. Right? If we're not going to be bold in our declaration of faith or when we invite them to church, right, most likely the conversation will move on and they won't take that invitation seriously. Right? It's only when we're bold and we stand up for what matters to us right? and we say, this is important to me, will we have a chance for them to make it important to them, right? By being bold, we have a lot more to lose, but we have a lot more to gain. So Nehemiah is bold. He says, this is what the problem is. This is why I'm upset. And we're going to move on to the, the following questions. I've broken it down like this. The first one was, why is your face sad? He says, why should not my face be sad? Then the king asks another question straight away. What are you requesting? And Nehemiah, he says, send me to Judah that I may rebuild it. Now, this is, again, this is a bold request because Nehemiah, he doesn't get stuff like annual leave. He's a servant. And by leaving the king, he's going to you know, inconvenience the king because now he's gone. The king has to get another cupbearer. And that new cupbearer, you know, if he doesn't trust him, might try to poison him. Right? There's a lot to lose for the king. He gains nothing out of this. Right? The next question the king asks is, well, how long will you be gone? Right? And by the way, all throughout this, the king hasn't shown his hand. He hasn't said yes or no. He just keeps asking questions. It's kind of like, is this a trick question? Am I, am I being cornered into a trap? Uh, we don't know Nehemiah's answer to this, by the way. Um, he might have said anything, I think, between half a year to 12 years. Uh, we find in Nehemiah chapter 5, he's gone for at least 12 years. And so potentially when the king says, how long are you going to be gone? Nehemiah says, uh, 12 years. 12 years annual leave, thanks. Um, or the least is um, half a year because the time to travel right from Susa to Jerusalem and back uh, would have been 2,600 kilometers. Now, if you break that down, that's from Sydney to Gold Coast to Sydney and then back to Gold Coast, right? And that doesn't seem that far, Sydney, Gold Coast, Sydney, Gold Coast, but uh, Nehemiah doesn't have a car. It doesn't have a plane. So he's either walking or he's on a horse. And to make that travel back and forth, just to travel time alone, we're not thinking about building a wall, that would have taken him half a year to travel. Right? And surprisingly, in verse 6, the king is pleased to send him. Right? It says, the king was pleased to send me when I had given him a time. Right? That's crazy. Right? He was pleased. It sounds a bit rude, right? 
12 years, I'm pleased to send you for 12 years. Um, it's a bit uh, crazy to think that the king is so happy to send Nehemiah. But that, that's the amazing thing about this whole story. The king is, is happy to send Nehemiah, right? God is working in the midst of this. And then we come to the fourth question. But again, now this fourth question is from Nehemiah to the king. Rather than just being thankful he's allowed to go, right? rather than being thankful his head is still attached to his shoulders, right? Nehemiah has like, the boldness to now make a request to the king. And what he asks the king is two things. He asks for protection. Give me letters so I'll have safe passageway on my journey. But the second thing he asks for is provision. He asks the king to pay out of his own pocket all of the wood to build the gates for the temple, the walls for the city, and the house I'm going to live in. Right? Can, you, can you give me all the wood for that? Right? There's just so much boldness going on here. And again, the most surprising thing is that the king says yes. Right? He says yes to all of this at the end. He says, go, go for 12 years. I'll give you all the wood. You know, you're my servant, but I'll let you build the walls. Even though I said, you know, stop building the walls. Right? It's just an incredible conversation he has. And so it's incredible that Nehemiah is bold. Uh, it's incredible that the king said yes. But to me, I think what's most incredible is that Nehemiah is afraid through all of it. If you remember verse 2, I'm very, he was very much afraid. You know, I don't know about you, but I find so much comfort in that phrase. Because when you read this story and you see how bold Nehemiah is, how courageous he is, it's tempting to think he's nothing like us. Right? Nehemiah is superhuman. Uh, I could never be that bold. But he is like us. Right? He gets afraid. He's human. He's scared. He's flawed. He's got weaknesses. He's got doubts. Right? And we're afraid too. But you know, we're like Nehemiah, and that means that we too can be as bold and as courageous as him if we can figure out what made him so courageous. You know, here's the thing. Christians do great and courageous things for God, not because they don't have a fear of things, but because they have a greater faith in God, right? We can have fear, but the key is to have greater faith, a, fear, a faith that is greater than the fear that we feel. And that's what Nehemiah had. Right? Nehemiah's source of courage was not in, on his own greatness, but in the greatness of God, right? He saw that God was great. He believed that God was great, and he put his faith in that God. And we see that in a few different ways, and I'm going to call it down to two different ways we see it in chapter 2. All right, he, we see it in the bullet prayer that he throws out in verse 4. Right, it says, Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? And it says, So I prayed to the God of heaven, and then I said to the king. All right, such an interesting kind of little insert there. Uh, Nehemiah is in the middle of a conversation with the king, and then when he says, What are you requesting? Right, and he's about to say it, you know, send me uh, to build the wall, like he must have like maybe one second, he throws up a bullet prayer to God. It's like, it's probably just like, help me, help me, Lord, God, help me, right? It's like this instinctive reaction he has, right? But it shows again where his courage is coming from, right? In the split second when he's able to just, you know, respond instinctively uh, without thinking, what he does is that he prays, right? This is the kind of, person he is but maybe more importantly it shows uh where his courage is coming from right he's praying and putting his faith in god 
We see it again at the end, at the object of his praise. That was the start. He prays, but at the end, he praises. At the end, he says in verse 8, The king granted me what I had asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. When the king says yes, Nehemiah doesn't praise himself. He doesn't say it worked out because I'm wise or I'm clever or I said right words. He doesn't praise the king. He doesn't say, well, the king of Persia is kind or compassionate. He's so generous. He says the king said yes because of God. Right? The good hand of God was upon me. Right? And this also reflects, again, all the way through, Nehemiah has been clinging on to God. He's saying, God, I need you, I need you, I need you, so that when the answer is yes, he said, God, you did this. Right? God, you did this. I was afraid. Maybe I would have given up on my conviction, but I held on to you, and you made it work. Right? And so I praise you. Right? Nehemiah knows that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. God turns it wherever he will. Right? And all the way through, I'm assuming Nehemiah is just holding on to that hope. God, I need you. God, would you work? All right, the second conviction killer is dread, fear. It comes at us. Often we want to give up on our convictions because we're afraid. But what we need to do is be bold, right? And we're able to be bold because we have faith in God. Right, I want to encourage us, Kingsway, again, we've got eight weeks until our Christmas events. And maybe you're afraid for various reasons, but especially maybe you're afraid to speak out, like Nehemiah may, might have been afraid, to speak out your convictions to people, to invite people to the Christmas service or whatever. It feels dangerous. It feels risky. There's a lot to lose. Right? But I encourage you to put your faith in God. Be bold because it won't matter to them if you're not going to say it matters to you. Right? I don't know about you. Sometimes when I want to you know, invite people to, you know, Things like church, well, I don't know if I have actually, um, but you know, if, if I were to, like, I, I make excuses for them. You know, it's like, um, oh, we got this Christmas thing going on. I know you're probably busy and, you know, it's going to be a little awkward and, you know, you probably don't want to come anyway, but you know, if you want to come, you can come. And basically, you've given all the excuses for them so they don't have to come. You know, but I would encourage you to be a bit bold in this. You know, tell them it's going to be awesome. There's going to be amazing things happening, you know, a bunch of funny people. And we're going to gather around, maybe in person or at my home. We're going to sit down with some good food. It's going to be relaxed, but I really want you to be there. So look at your calendar, try to move things around, right, and get back to me. Right? Be a bit bold in that, right, and show that it matters to you. And maybe one day it will matter to them. Right? Make a big deal about Jesus, about your faith, about Kingsway, about our launch. And if you feel afraid, you're in good company because Nehemiah was afraid. But what got him through was his faith in God. Put your faith in God and be bold. All right? That's the second conviction killer, dread. And the third one is the shortest one, uh, is discouragement. As the story goes on, um, verse 9 to 20, we see Nehemiah go out to Jerusalem. He inspects the walls, and then he's finally going to get his people together and tell them we're going to rebuild the wall. Um, but again, he's confront, confronted by you know, another uh, opposition or obstacle, a conviction killer. Uh, he's confronted by discouragement. Uh, immediately in verse 9 to 10, right, Nehemiah faces his first form of discouragement. It's um, people, right? Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite. And in verse 19, there's another guy, Geshem the Arab. 
And these three people, they, uh, the Bible says they jeer at him, they despise him, and they question his work. They question his allegiance to the Persian king. And I don't know about you, but you know, people uh, can be like really discouraging and it can make you want to give up on what you're trying to do. Uh, you'd think that you know, after this astonishing outcome he has, uh, Nehemiah has with his conversation with the king, that the first thing he'd be confronted with is encouragement, right? A group of supporters who are like cheering him on and saying, whoa, that was amazing. You're doing a great job. You're the right person for the job, right? But that's not what he gets. He's immediately confronted by people who want to discourage him, right? Who are doubting in the work that he's doing, right? And that's really hard when you're surrounded by doubters, right? When you're surrounded by people, you just want to cut down your decisions and question whether you're the right person to do the job. You know, when I think back to uh, when I left New Life, uh, it was hard for so many reasons, you know, uh, it was complicated, uh, but the hardest part of that was people, right? People who kind of questioned, you know, motives or decisions that I had. And, you know, people are, are big, you know, especially when they come to discourage you. And that's what Nehemiah is confronted with here. Right? The second source of discouragement that he's confronted with is the actual work that is ahead of him. And so after the people in verse 11 to 16, Nehemiah goes to inspect the walls. And what he finds is that it's just as bad as the news that he heard in chapter one, right? He inspects it, the, the walls that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. This is basically what he heard. And, you know, maybe there was a little bit of wishful thinking on his part, thinking, you know, maybe it's not as bad as he thought, but it is as bad as he thought. Right? And I just imagine as he looks at the state of Jerusalem, he's imagining how much time it's going to take and all the work that is ahead of him. Right? The devastation is real, right? and it's difficult to see it with your own eyes. You know, parts of the city are in such disrepair that he has to get off his animal and he has to go by foot right? because there's so much rubble on the ground. Right. Commentators think that you know, what he comes across is this huge spill of rubble that uh, excavators have found in 1961. Right? When they're digging, they actually found you know, this place and there's just like, a, like this huge stack of rubble uh, left behind by Nebuchadnezzar's assault. And you know, maybe that's what he confronted. And I'm just imagining as Nehemiah looks at all this rubble and ash, looks at all the work ahead of him, that he might have questioned, you know, how is he ever going to get it done? I want you to remember that Nehemiah is not an architect, he's not an engineer, he's not a builder, he's a wine taster, you know? How is he gonna make this happen? Uh, you know, I think quite possibly uh, this kind of discouragement would have killed the conviction of many, uh, but not Nehemiah. Again, he pushes forward because of his faith in God. And I'll just quickly point out two areas we see this. In verse 17 to 20, he comes back to his people, the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the workers, and he tells them, guys, this is why we're here. We're going to rebuild the wall. But as he tells them this, we see in two points that his faith is in God, right? This is where his courage and boldness comes from. In verse 18, right, as he rallies the troops, he says, we're going to build the wall. Verse 18, I told them of the good hand of God that had been upon me for good and also of the words of the king had spoken, spoken to me. Right? Nehemiah talks about God, 
and then he talks about the king. But the order is very important. He talks about God's hand first before he talks about the king, because in the mind of Nehemiah, this is um, you know what's the priority? God. Right? God's hand has been with me. Right? Again, he praises God for the success, and that's where he's banking his hope and confidence. God's power. Right? God is with us, and He's going to make it happen. Right. What matters more to Nehemiah is not that the king has got their back, but that God has got their back, and so it's going to work out. Right. God's presence is far more important to him than the king's permission. And so he's putting his faith in God, and his confidence is not in you know, the king's words. It's not in the words of his opponents, but in the word and the hand of God that is with him. And so he pushes forward despite this conviction killer. Not only does he rely on God's power, he relies on God's promises. In verse 19 to 20, when he responds to the jeering and the, the three people who are despising him, right? they ask, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? He replies, the God of heaven will make us prosper. Again, he's anchoring his faith on God and God making it happen. And then he says, we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim. In Jerusalem, right? you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Nehemiah says this like, like it's a diss, right? Well, well, you have no right. Well, you have no part in Jerusalem. Um, but the thing is, Jerusalem's a mess, right? And I think, you know, they might have thought, well, we don't want any right or claim in Jerusalem. It's a pile of rubble. Right? But for Nehemiah, it's a diss, right? For Nehemiah, it's offensive to say that because he's so confident in God's word, right? That God will keep. His promises. Right, back in chapter one, when he prays, uh, he quotes back to God what God promised. God had promised back in Deuteronomy that he will gather his people and bring them to the place that he has chosen if the people will repent and keep his commands. And it's like Nehemiah is banking himself on that promise. God's going to make this happen. God's going to rebuild the world because he's promised that if we repent and keep his commandments, he's going to gather us again, right? And the city is going to be right. And so Jerusalem, it might as well be rebuilt already. Right? That's the kind of confidence he has. And so you guys have no right or claim in Jerusalem. Right? He's so confident that Jerusalem will one day be a glorious city again. Right? It's this kind of faith in God right, that gives him the courage to push through discouragement, right? discouraging people and the work ahead. Even though the road seems very long in front of him, he knows that he'll get through right, because of God's promises and God's power. Uh, just to summarize, uh, let me wrap it up. This chapter is kind of really filled with a lot of stuff. I, I went through it quite quickly. Uh, it's an extraordinary chapter. It's got extraordinary you know, events and outcomes, uh, but it's just an ordinary guy, Nehemiah, afraid, but able to anchor his faith on an extraordinary God. Right? It's because he put his faith on God, right? because God is great that is able to push through each of these obstacles, right? Each of these conviction killers. Because he has faith in God when he faces delay, he doesn't let that conviction die away, but he has the faith to stay the course. He prepares, he prays, and four months later, he still has his conviction alive, right? Because he has faith, even though he faces dread, right? Fear is in front of the king. He's about to say out loud what his conviction was in his heart, he doesn't avoid that hard, conviction, hard conversation. He has the faith to speak boldly of the things that matter to him. Right? And because he's bold, 
in what matters to him in the face of dread, right? The conversation continues. And even though he faces discouragement in the form of people and the work ahead of him, he has the faith to start and he keeps working right? because he's certain of God, God's power, God's promises, God's presence. And Kingsway, as it close, I just want to say, you know, I don't know where you're at with your convictions. It's been maybe a long nine months, right, leading up to where we are. We've got eight weeks out. And maybe through the nine months, uh, your conviction has wavered. Uh, you've been hit with delay. Maybe you've been hit with dread as you try to have conversations um, to contact and connect with people. Uh, maybe you've been hit with discouragement, right? Maybe in ministry, it feels like you've been hitting walls. And I urge you uh, to put your faith in God to pray to him, to rely on his power, rely on his promises, rely on his presence, and to stay the course, right? To speak with boldness as we start inviting people. And hopefully when we start, we'll be able to start strong. Right? We'll be able to start with conviction, right? Conviction that God is with us. And so I've got two questions for us to have a chat about today. Uh, the first one is how strong is your conviction and passion for our upcoming launch? And you rate it out of 10 and you can rate it. Maybe 10 is the best and zero is like, I have absolutely zero conviction. You know, I don't know what I'm doing here. And maybe let's just have honest conversations and, you know, maybe just encourage us wherever we are. And the second question is, how can you be more courageous in living out your convictions this week? Right. It's about anchoring our faith in God. And as we do that, that we would have the courage to, you know, I don't know, push forward to be bold in our conversation. But, you know, what's one area that you can be courageous in yourself? Again, we've got eight weeks, guys. Eight weeks. It's so soon. Um, let's keep pushing forward in our convictions.